Tonight, uh, finish off chapter one, and then next week go to chapter two. I mentioned last week I'd like to start chapter two, but I have a few things I want to go through yet that I got to get to. I haven't haven't uh, gone as fast as I thought I was going to go, but I want to start by reading Revelation chapter one, starting with verse twelve. I've read this three times now in its entirety, but I want to read Revelation one twelve through chapter two verse seven. And then uh, uh, read along as, as far as whatever translation or Bible or tablet you're reading from, or a phone as well. Revelation 1, verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, John writing, and I, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, <clears throat> dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And John, who knew him well, said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Not to get an answer from you, but just to ask the question, you know, put yourself in John's shoes and what would be your, your experience there if this was you in John's place and what would be your response and your reaction to that vision of the resurrected glorified Christ? I think it would be the same as John's, honestly. Uh, we would fall at his feet as though dead. But then I love the, the compassion of Christ. And he said, and he placed his hand, right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. You know, do not fear. Don't fear. I am the first and the last. You know, the beginning and the end. I, I am the living one. I was dead, past tense. I was dead. And behold, I am, present tense, alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And then it says in verse 19, write, Jesus told him, write therefore what you have seen and what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars you, that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We'll talk more about that tonight specifically. And then chapter 2, the, to the church in Ephesus the big successful church, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I have this against you. Uh, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. <clears throat> repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, uh, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, and he says this to every church, to him who overcomes, or to he who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We're going to pause right there. 
and we're going to jump in, and I kind of made an outline tonight to kind of get us back on track and looking at that outline, just kind of putting some things that I put on the last two weeks. Outline was the same one last two Wednesdays, and then I added a few things, some fill-in-the-blanks, whatever, but, but last week we started looking at John's vision of the glorified, resurrected Christ. And I want to review just a little bit of that before we move on. Uh, just take about five minutes maybe on that. But, but you recall that John addresses here seven churches, and it comes from the eternal God who is, who was, and who is to come. I mean, past, present, or present, past, and future. Uh, Jesus Christ is the examiner of our spiritual health, and his, as we will see, his examination is thorough. Uh, John also mentions Jesus Christ, talked about this last week, as the faithful witness in verse 5. Uh, our witness is not only faithful, he is the most reliable of witnesses of all. And, uh, and, and then John says, our examiner is the one who loves us. Always keep in mind that Jesus Christ is writing to his church, his churches, or his church at large, but, but basically you know, telling, telling them you know, uh, he loves us. And it's good to be reminded from time to time that God loves you, amen? And, and, and what difference does that make, you know, to know that he loves us? Well, if there's any bias at all in his examination of the churches, it's that of love. Everything he does is from a heart of love. And then John gives us even greater detail about the one who has come to examine the churches. He says in verse 13, And among the lampstands, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Now, the attention here in the chapters that follow, especially 2 and 3, the seven churches that are being written to, the attention is not the churches, the attention's on Jesus. Always keep that in mind. Uh, we cannot separate uh, the person of Christ from the prophecy here. And I've said that once, I've said it a dozen times now, but the attention is on Jesus in their midst, among the lampstands. Now, the book of Revelation, I said before, I say again, is first and foremost a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, you know, I, I hear, well, it's, let's look at the revelation. You know, no, it's, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he is described as one like unto the Son of Man, which is an example of the use of the Old Testament language in the book of Revelation. And then we look at his clothing, his judicial robe, if you will. The robe is not only symbolic of his royal dignity as the ruler of kings or princes, whatever, of, of leadership in the world today on the earth, but it also speaks, the robe speaks of his judicial authority. He has been given all authority. And then verse 14, I love this, his hair and his head, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Uh, the, the hair, the whiteness of that typifies maturity, wisdom, and understanding. Uh, not only that, but white also represents purity. Purity, from, free from taint of mixture of any kind, it typifies the dazzling splendor of his holiness. And then his eyes were like a flame of fire. Fire not only speaks of light, light being that which dispels darkness, bringing clarity <clears throat> and revelation, but a fire that refines. I referred to this last week looking at Malachi. He's, God's a refiner's fire. And, and guess what? If, if the fire of God touches you, you won't be the same. 
All right. Uh, eyes of fire also speak of his all-searching, penetrating gaze that reveals and exposes every hidden sin or motivation. There is no sin that you are currently involved in that will not be made known. He knows everything into every church. I know, I know, I know. Everything is before his penetrating gaze. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 4, 13, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before, his eye, before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, following his opening remarks to each of the seven churches, letters are, are words that say, as I said, I know. And once again, nothing escapes his, his gaze. And then verse 15, Revelation 1.15, His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of rushing waters. First of all, his feet uh, like fine brass as if they burned in the furnace. Feet speak of dominion. Feet speak of walk, of stability and strength. The fact that they were burnished reveals Christ's absolute purity, both in his walk and in his dominion. He walks among the churches. He has a right to put all things under his feet. His authority is final, and his judgment is pure. And then his voice, and also in verse 15, excuse me, was the, like the sound of many waters. Uh, think about it this way. The, this, this mighty voice, like the sound of many waters, ties together all the previous voices from all the prophets of old, from all the patriarchs of old and whatever, into one, if you will, just as uh, mighty rivers contain uh, waters from various streams that flow into it. His voice does not contradict the previous words spoken by his servants and prophets of old, but rather it is a blending of all of them into one. His voice was like the sound of many waters. Everything comes together and what he says is true. His voice remains the same because his standards and his values never change. Verse 16, in his right hand, uh, and I'm going to pause on this till we get into chapter 2, both basically, but also in verse 20. It says it like three times, twice in, in chapter 1, once in chapter 2. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was shining like, was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. First of all, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. In other words, his words can cut both ways. He, he condemns, and, and he, he condones, he commends. Uh, he praises, and he prosecutes. He defends, and he denounces. Jesus' words are final, and there's no appeals or retrials. What he says goes, regardless. And so keep in mind that his sword, his word is powerful, and then his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance and its strength. The sun reaches its strength between its rising and its setting. You recall the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, and he had that uh, uh, bright light experience, and he testifies about it in Acts 9, in Acts 22, and Acts 26, you know, brighter than the noonday sun. Well, the noonday sun in Arizona, it gets hot here in the summertime when that sun's like way up you know, above in the sky and it's just beating down on you. You walk out, it's like, wow, it is so bright, it is so hot out here. And... Uh, but that's his constant state. Christ is viewed here at the zenith of his brightness. 
This is his constant state. He has no variable or shadow of turning. The light of his wisdom and judgment neither rises nor sets. He is the Lord and he changes not. And so we're trying to give you this, what John had was this majestic picture of our glorified Savior. And I thought, what a glorious, but yet what a fearful picture. Uh, This judge is the absolute final authority. There is no injustice with him. He cannot be bribed or bought. He shows no partiality. Nothing is hidden from him as he discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. His verdict is not based on opinion polls or denominational politics. He cannot be deceived or misled. There are no plea bargains. There are no personal favors. There are statutes uh, of limitations that limits his justice and provides a safe harbor for, for the offender. Tears and begging won't change his mind. Friends and family can't intervene. Popularity and size won't sway his verdict regarding the size of the church or whatever it might be. Rich and poor, black and white, male and female, educated and uneducated will all be treated the same. Seniority will have no pull. There is one thing that will lessen his severity. James reveals that this one secret when he writes in James 2.13, judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the picture of our resurrected Lord and Savior. That's the picture of our examiner, the one who's going to examine each of the seven churches in Asia Minor. Verse 17, moving on. And I'm going somewhere with this, so stay with me. But when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid, fear not, for I am the first and the last. You'll recall that John had already seen a glimpse of the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. There the face of Jesus shone like the sun, his eye, or his clothes glistened and glittered like flashes of lightning from the outside of inner glory, but that was only a foretaste. The disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration were awed, but not struck down. John, on the other hand, now on the Isle of Patmos, was not able to stand the full impact of the glory of God in Christ and fell into what must have been an unconscious state or a coma. Then that same right hand that held the seven stars was laid on John, and John heard these words comforting his heart, Fear not, don't be afraid. And then Jesus gave him the wonderful assurance that he has not changed. He is still the first and the last, the eternal, unchanging Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He wants to be the most important person in a believer's life so they can be prepared for that day when he shall come again. That's the, uh, that's the goal. That's the idea here. Verse 18, Jesus said, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. In other words, he's saying, I am the one who died for you and who rose from the dead. I conquered death, hell, and the grave. I have the keys, and I have all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And Jesus said this, Write down, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. You see, Jesus touched John not just to revive him, but to commission him to write this revelation. 
of Jesus Christ. In like manner, when God touches our lives, it's not just so we can feel good about ourselves, but God touches our lives so in turn, he can commission us to do something for him. Amen? And then the things you have seen, what is now and won't take place later. What you have seen, most Bible scholars will say, is what is taking place in chapter 1. What is now is chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, kind of breaks it up for you. And then what will take place later really deals with then chapters 4 through chapter 22. That's kind of the basic division of this. That being said, let's talk about then the seven angels, the second point on your outline. A couple more things before we look at the seven messages of the churches. Let's consider the angels or the stars. John tells us in Revelation 1.20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, who are the stars? Who are the angels of these churches? Whom is the Lord addressing these urgent letters containing the standards by which they'll be examined? They are the spiritual leaders, the pastors, the messengers of the churches. All right? Uh, how do you know that? Well, very simple. By looking at the letters that were addressed to them. Of the seven personalities addressed, four of the seven are in need of repentance. All are exhorted to overcome. Now, while we may be able to excuse some from the need of repentance, every one is told to overcome. I was reading something, I think it was yesterday afternoon, about this idea and overcoming. And, and you know, there's Christians that, that say they're Christians for this and that. There's only one kind of Christian, this article was saying, this author was saying, and that is the Christian who overcomes. The only kind that God's after is those, those that overcome. And, and, and so we can, yeah, all, all churches are told to overcome. And, and friends, this would not be applied to literal angels, celestial beings. Okay, that's why we say they're stars, they're, they're pastors of the churches. In addition, why are these spiritual leaders referred to as stars? Think about stars. God created stars to do what? Give light. To give light. Uh, to give light to the earth during the dark times. It is, in other words, it's the spiritual leader's responsibility to shed light amid the surrounding darkness of the world. Daniel said this in Daniel 12, 3, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel 12, 3. Stars are also used to provide guidance. Uh, sailors have used stars to chart their course for centuries. Jude takes this, takes this image of stars and uses it in a negative sense when he speaks of those concerning uh, those who have crept into the church to mislead and deceive the flock. Jude, verse 13, he refers to them as wandering stars in a negative sense. And so the seven stars that were held in the right hand of the risen Christ uh, were the leaders of the seven churches. Now, uh, in his right hand is mentioned in verse 16 of chapter 1, in verse 20 of chapter 1, and verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, what significance can we learn from this? The seven stars 
in my right hand. There's five blanks that I left blank so you can fill them in as we go through here. And number one is this. Spiritual leaders have a place, number one, of security. Leaders need to understand that if they have been appointed by God, they don't need to feel threatened by anyone. Uh, being in his right hand means protection. I'm glad that I'm in his right hand. All right. For, uh, 2 Samuel 5.12 And David knew that the Lord had established him as the king over Israel. See, when God places a person in leadership, nothing and no one can alter that fact. The only one that can change it is that person through disobedience or through sin. And yet, a lot of leaders today struggle with insecurity. Here's a great quote from Leonard Ravenhill, my mentor, from his writings and stuff, and I got his videos and everything else. But he, Leonard Ravenhill said this, The man who is intimate with God is never intimidated by man. I love that. Because this, this, is, what Christ, this is what Christ is after, is intimacy. And so every believer needs to know that we have a place of security in Christ and a, and a place in building His church. And every leader needs to see that if they are truly called by God, they are held and therefore secure in the hands of the Lord. Back when I was attending Trinity Bible College back in the 1980s, um, I went to a class that was called Church Administration 101, and Dr. Dayton Kingswriter uh, was our professor for that class. And I, the one main thing I got from his class, and I wrote this down and I never forgot all these years, he says, number one, know that you're called. Number two, know where you're called. And number three, do the work that God's called you to do. Know that you're called, know where you're called, and do the work that God's called you to do. And so number one, spiritual leaders have a place of security. Number two, spiritual leaders also have a place of intimacy. Now, don't miss the beauty of this picture. The ever-living Lord holds us in His right hand. We've, we know the commercial, you're in good hands with Allstate. Now, you're in good hands with Jesus. Amen? All right. Every leader needs to see himself or herself in this place of intimacy. The Lord Himself holds the seven stars in His strong right hand. It's a picture of intimacy and beauty as he draws us to himself. So we have security, number one, uh, intimacy, number two. Thirdly, spiritual leaders have a place of authority. God's right hand speaks of his power or his authority. His authority. We have all been raised together and seated with him on the right hand of God in heavenly places, but here we are actually held in his right hand. The right hand signifies authority. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me on earth and as well as in heaven. He says, therefore, go, go and make disciples. And so we have been authorized by him to do what he's called us to do. But the right hand signifies authority. You'll recall that as Rachel gave birth and died in the process, she named the child Ben-Oni. B-E-N slash O-N-I, the son of my sorrows. But Jacob gave him the special honor of calling him Benjamin, the son of my right hand, is what Benjamin means. 
And so once again, that place of authority. Think of the honor that Christ has given us as spiritual leaders to be held in his right hand, representative of his authority. Fourthly, spiritual leaders have a place of clarity. Now, how different things appear when viewed from heaven's perspective. Climb any mountain, or better yet, fly over the earth by plane. How many like to travel? Let me see your hands. I know some of you like to travel. <laughs> dun, 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 you just got done traveling. All right. And, and, and you get a different perspective from the airplane. Every once in a while, Doris's son-in-law, James, will post a picture. Uh, this is my view today. This is my office view today. And it's like, it's gorgeous, you know. And Albert, you're, you're a pilot too. And so you see that. Uh, just recently, this past summer, about a month and a half, two months ago, I had a guy knock on my door at our cabin. We're up there, and I think you guys were, were, were there too. And it was a guy that came two years ago with his drone, and he's from the previous place we had up there, and he did a bunch of drone shots of when our cabin was being built. And I forgot his name, honestly, and I didn't, his name is Jim, but now I know that, and it's easy. But uh, um, he, he took all kinds of new shots of our place. Now, here two years later, and, and things planted and rock in place and gardens in place and everything else. But the drone gives you perspective. Almost every person nowadays selling a house are going to have drone shots on the MLS listing because it gives you perspective. Well, hopefully, we get perspective by being in his hand. We see things from the heavenly point of view. Uh, uh, this is the leader's main responsibility, honestly, is to teach the heavenly perspective. I'm not trying to you know, keep you here on earth. I'm trying to get people to go to heaven. You know, and, and, and you're trying to get people to go to heaven. But first, we must experience him firsthand and have that clarity that he gives us. Number four. Number five, spiritual leaders have a place of unity. Now in John's vision, keep this in mind, all seven stars are held in the same hand. All seven churches are in the same hand. John is seeing things from his heavenly perspective. There are seven churches, each located in a different city, and yet in God's mind, they are all one. Know what that means to us? The pastor down the road pastoring the Baptist church or the Presbyterian church is in the same hand as I'm in. We're not in competition with each other. We have a common goal, and that is to win souls for Jesus Christ. See, so John doesn't describe a fight happening among the stars, but shows the unity that God intends. Now, Jesus prayed a prayer in John 17 that his church would be one. Uh, if anybody's prayers are going to get answered, it's his. Right? It's his. And, and so we can, we can uh, be part of that. And so uh, maybe that's why Paul also says it's, it's unwise to compare ourselves with ourselves. So we have security, we have intimacy, we have authority, we have clarity, and we have unity. The seven angels... The seven stars. Now, that does not mean that I, I am an angel and, and by far, you know, far from that all, but, but I am secure in, in what God's called me to do and this and that. But uh, um, anyway, we move on. Let's talk about the exam now. The exam begins. Let me read you a story and just imagine it's going to be the examination of your life. The outcome is going to determine your entire future. By the way, how many of you like exams or tests? Uh, most of us don't. 
all right? But you're, and in this exam, you're not assured of being able to take it again should you fail. Some have passed this exam with flying colors. Others have failed completely. The standards have not been compromised in over 2,000 years. The exam remains unchanged throughout every generation. And now your turn is coming to take the exam. Your hands become clammy. Your heart races. Your mind reels. Perspiration breaks upon your forehead. Night after night, you turn restlessly on your bed, your pillow damp from sweat. Nothing seems to relieve the anxiety or the worry. The days begin to pass like minutes as you head towards that dreaded moment when suddenly you are given a copy of the exam and you can't believe your eyes. You think you're dreaming, but no, it's true. You are actually holding in your hands the very test paper itself. What an incredible break. And best of all, it's all legal. Excitedly, you begin pouring over the paper, convinced that you are in, you're just in need of a few, you know, brushing up on a few areas, and you are so confident that your worries have been largely unfounded. But as you read over the exam, your heart begins to sink. You suddenly become aware of how little value you have placed on certain areas. The things you've majored on and considered important don't seem to appear anywhere on the exam, while the areas you've given a little attention to are found throughout most of the exam. You realize that you have majored on the minors and neglected the things that are most important to the examiner himself. You're grateful for one thing. You have a little time to cram for the exam. But most of all, you're eternally grateful for the kindness of the examiner who allowed you to see the paper ahead of time. Now, every day you give yourself to studying the exam, determined that you're not going to waste a minute. Over and over you think to yourself, I can't believe that nobody told me these things. You finally come to the conclusion that so many of your friends actually pointed you in the wrong direction and that if you had listened to them, your name eventually would have been on the failure list. But you've been given this exam so you can be prepared. See, what I just read is not just some speculation, but it is, in fact, true when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. We will all be examined to see if we have been following Him in His obedient ways or if we've been building in his name, but in our own way. See, the seven letters that we're going to get into starting next week to the churches in Asia Minor have been passed down to us through the kindness and the generosity of the examiner himself. Jesus loves his church, and he wants what is best for his church, and he wants to make sure his church is prepared and ready, a bride who has prepared herself. They were written for our instruction. Paul, the apostle, said this in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 through 6. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, Paul writes. And so we are told to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, put ourselves to the test. Now, if you listen carefully, you can hear 
the voice of Jesus. It's firm, but it's loving. And he corrects and he redirects us. And he says to each and every church, to those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Yes, God's current message to the church is all written for us in black and white. This is the more sure word of prophecy. It is the word that will be the standard against which we are examined. Jesus made this absolutely clear when he said in John 12, verse 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Now, if that's not enough to convince you, then look again at the first few verses of Revelation where John writes in Revelation 1.3, and we've covered this in the last few weeks, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Now, the intent here is not just for me to read it out loud as I've been, as I've been doing and telling you, but to, to heed, to keep the things which are written therein, for the time is near. Now, what time is John talking about? I believe he's talking about the time in each of our lives when we're going to enter eternity. The exam is going to be over, and we're going to have to face the examiner. Every one of us are going to stand before Jesus Christ at his judgment seat and give an account for our lives. If this is unsettling to you, it doesn't need to be. Personally, I am grateful for the reminders that God has given us in this book, in this revelation of Jesus Christ, reminders of eternity for your life and for my life. So friends, we need to constantly be reminded to rise above the realm of the temporal and enter the realm of the eternal. Eternity sheds new light on our understanding and our values of what he values. Jesus said it best when he taught, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The thought of facing Christ, our examiner, in eternity need not be dismaying, not if we are heeding his words. Now, those leading the church and everyone else doing their work of the church are simply asked to listen and obey. Listen and obey. It's that simple. So, let me ask you tonight. In light of eternity, how are you living your life right now? If you are a spiritual leader of a church or if you're a hardworking member of a church, are you building the church in light of his standards and not your own? I just read today, and my heart breaks when I read this kind of thing, but there's a church in Texas, and I don't know the town right now. You can look it up. They're having uh, drag queens come and, and doing something in the church. Is it a bingo something or whatever? It's like, why in God's name are you having drag queens come you know, and well, we're just, we just want to open our doors to each and every one. Well, I get that, but there better be a call to repentance. You know, um, I, I don't get that part. And then I read a, an article by Ray Comfort today saying the same thing, basically looking at the article that was put out by the Christian Post a few weeks back, where like 30-some percent of pastors, you know, say that you can earn your way to salvation, you can earn your way into heaven by your good works, and, and it's like, come on. I mean, and, and Ray Comfort's take is we have false pastors preaching to false Christians in a lot of our churches in America. And I, I was like, yes, we do. Um, 
But as we move on to Revelation 2 and 3, uh, we're about to see that the examiner of our works grades on a scale much different from the scale that we would probably use. But that shouldn't surprise us. After all, Jesus had said all along, keep this in mind, the last shall be first, but the first shall be last. He said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus also said this, hard to do. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Uh, don't do everyone just get back at them, you know. He says, pray, love them, pray for them. And so that tells me, as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, heaven's perspective is so much different from ours. His perspective, the examiner's perspective is what matters. And friends, if we are going to be unashamed at his appearing, we better be willing to re-examine our lives and work in light of Christ's standards for his church. And I can guarantee you his standards are different from ours. Okay? So, let me, let me just walk you through now, the last few minutes here, guidelines for interpreting Revelation. Guidelines. And I'm going to grab my glasses on because my print here is really small. Uh, guidelines. Uh, uh, number one, or letter A, understand the various ways of interpreting this book. There are four that are listed for you there. Let's talk about those four different ways that believers interpret Revelation. Uh, number one, the first is the past or the preterist view. Those with this view say that Revelation 1 through 18 has already happened in the first century. They say that the prophecies of Revelation were fulfilled as the first Christians struggled against Rome, and therefore those who followed this emphasis on the past believe that Revelation says little or nothing about the future. That's the first view. Now, it is true that some of Revelation applied directly to the early church, uh, the city of Rome was built on seven hills, Revelation 17, 9. The Roman Caesars or emperors were cruel to Christians, but the preterist view seems to contradict with other scriptures. In other words, it seems impossible to fit all of Revelation 1 through 18 into the first century. There was never a time when every mountain and every island fled away, Revelation 6, 14, and none of the people on earth were ever forced to take a mark on their right hand or the forehead, Revelation 13, 6, 16 through 17. And so you can X out that view as not being a good view to adhere to. Number two, the second view is the historic or the historical view. The historist view uh, Christians with this view uh, face also face the past, but unlike those with the preterist view, they do not limit Revelation to the first hundred years of the church. Instead, they try to match Revelation with the events of history from the early church to the present. Key things they, this, this view emphasizes includes historical events like the rise of the Pope and the Crusade Wars. Those following the histor historical view do not see a great tribulation at the end of the age. Rather, they see the tribulation and other events over the history of the church. The problem with this view is that each generation interprets Revelation in a different way. Number three, the third view is the spiritual or the idolist view, the idealist view. Unlike the first two views, those with the spiritual view do not face the past. We could say they look up. In other words, they say that Revelation is about spiritual ideas, not about real people or real events. They believe that Revelation is like a parable. 
Uh, it did not happen and will not happen. They say the book emphasizes spiritual warfare and God's triumph over evil. The problem with this view is that it, only, it contradicts other scriptures. For example, Paul does not say that the Antichrist is only an idea. He teaches that the Antichrist will be a real person, 2 Thessalonians 2. We cannot accept any view like this one that does not agree with the rest of the Bible. Which brings us then to the fourth view, which is the futurist view. Uh, this is the view of multitudes of believers today. As futurists, we believe that Revelation 5 through 19 will take place during a, a period of about seven years. The seven-year period of tribulation is based on Daniel 9, 27. We'll get there when we get there. These seven years of God's wrath and judgment will end with the return of Jesus Christ. Then Revelation 20 through 22 follows. Throughout this book, we will view Revelation as mostly about the future because there are fewer problems with this than the other three views, and it seems to line up with the whole genre of Scripture as the other ones don't. Now, John saw that the Roman Empire as a great beast that hated the church. Still, in the last days, there will be another beast like the Roman Empire. This beast will persecute believers and rule during the final seven years of tribulation. Uh, never forget that prophecy is often fulfilled in a couple of ways. Uh, there may be a historical fulfillment, but also an end-time fulfillment. For example, Matthew 24, Jesus prophesied many events. Some of these were fulfilled historically in A.D. 70, but the greatest fulfillment will come at the end of the age. So it, it was true in that era, in that time, for a certain segment of people or society or whatever, but there's also coming a greater fulfillment of that prophecy. So those are the various ways of interpreting Revelation. We adhere to number four, the, future, the, futuristic, the futurist view. Now, B, allow Revelation to explain its own symbols when possible. There are lots and lots and lots of symbols uh, that, that are used here. Now, why did John, John use symbols? Well, symbols were given as, as, as word pictures to add emphasis, basically. Uh, John could have said that Jesus walked among the seven churches. However, using the symbol of a lampstand instead of the word church gives us a great picture. The lampstand reminds us that churches are in the world to give light in the darkness. John, likewise, could have said that an evil leader would rise to rule the world, but yet he used the symbol of a beast instead of the words evil leader. The symbol of a beast emphasizes the kind of leader the Antichrist will be. Again, John contrasted the symbols of a bride and a harlot instead of just contrasting the church with a worldly system. Symbols communicate truth in a more powerful, emotional way. Okay, so a lot of symbols being used and allow Revelation to explain those as we walk through those. It's not a real difficult book to understand. C. Recognize the relationship of Revelation to the Old Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament. Of these 27, Revelation refers the most to the Old Testament. Matthew quotes or refers to the Old Testament over 200 times. But Revelation refers to people, events, or verses in the Old Testament more than 340 times. Matter of fact, 
what Old Testament book of the Bible do we see the most anyone in the book of Revelation? Most often quoted. Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah is the correct answer. Uh, Genesis is quoted 13 times, Exodus 27 times, Deuteronomy 10 times, Psalms, Psalms, Psalms 43 times, Isaiah is quoted 79 times, Jeremiah 22, Ezekiel 43, the second most quoted is Daniel 53 times. So Isaiah 79, Daniel 53, Ezekiel 43. Uh, Joel 8 times, Amos 9 times, and Zechariah 15 times. And so we're going to see a lot of the Old Testament being referred to in this last book in our Bible. The fourth, I, the fourth thing here is this. Number four, admit what you do not yet see clearly. Now, there is a great contrast between Daniel and Revelation. Daniel was a closed book. God told Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end, Daniel 12, 4. But God told John the opposite of what he told Daniel. The Lord said to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near, Revelation 22, 10, as well as in the first chapter. So friends, we are living in the last days. Therefore, God wants us to understand what is near. Unlike Daniel, Revelation then is an open book. It's not sealed up. It's for our understanding. Now, even, even with that, most of the prophecies of Revelation are still for the future. We may understand the general message, but find it hard to know the specifics. For example, we may understand a lot about the Antichrist, but Revelation does not tell us his name. Now, here's where we can get into error. Great leaders like Martin Luther, John Calvin were wrong in their interpretation of Revelation. They both taught that the 1,260 days stood for 1,260 years and that the Antichrist was the Pope. I've read that even today from some authors looking at how the Catholic Church plays in this. we got to be careful. John Wesley also erred by believing the 1260-year theory. He expected the Pope to be conquered by Christ in 1836. If such spiritual giants as these erred in interpreting Revelation, surely we should not jump to conclusions. So just a word of caution there. Uh, there's going to be things where we go, I'm not sure on that. It's okay not to be sure. Okay, that's what I'm saying. A voice from heaven told John to seal up what the seven thunders said, Revelation 10. This shows that there are some things about the future that remain secrets of God. Uh, we should be humble and admit that we do not know yet. Paul's advice to the Corinthians is good for us as well. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, do not go beyond what is written. Good advice. Likewise, the words of Moses may help us. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So that gives you a little help then and some guidelines as we walk, as we go through this and as we go and, and walk you through this. So here is your assignment for next week. I want you to read Revelation chapter 2 and meditate on verses 1 through 7. Look at what Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus. 
We'll talk about why Ephesus was first. I think it's because it's closest. But uh, so read, read uh, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. With that, I'm also going to ask you to read Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20 because Ephesus had a tremendous revival, a tremendous move of God. Paul was at Ephesus longer than any other church he planted or he was speaking to. I also read Ephesians chapter 6. So we have number 1, Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7. We have Acts 19 and 20, and then Ephesians chapter 6. All right? And what we're going to do as we kind of go through these seven churches that Jesus was writing to, these letters, uh, we're going to see in every church it reveals part of the something else of the character of Christ. We see this in Ephesus as well as the other churches. So we're going to look at his character, what else is revealed. We're going to look at what he commends. We're going to look at what he condemns. If he can, in two of the seven, he didn't condemn anything. And then we're going to look at what he, what he counsels the church to do in light of that. For example, Ephesus. You know, remember, repent, remember, and then redo the first works. And so we're going to talk about that in the, the, the uh, chapters 2 and 3 as we, as we walk through that. 